Every morning I, I wake up, I have the same thought. It's been a long time since something special happened to me. And I'm so alone, but I'm blessed really because if something nice actually did happen to me, I wouldn't have anyone nice to share it with. So maybe when something good happens, it'll be when I have someone nice. And then it'll be double great. I mean, I'll say that every morning. I, it's just too long, so I just say, double grade. You want to say it with me? Double grade? Yeah. No. That's cool. Drop down afternoon. Drift in afternoon. Afternoon, afternoon spray. Drop on my All right, hello and welcome to another edition of Macmillan Men. This is the podcast where we talk about the Amazon Prime show Patriot. My name's Luke Burbank, and uh, right over there is my friend and fellow. Uh, afternoon spray enthusiast Andrew Walsh. Hello, hello. Would you say that I'm sort of the 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 uh, uh, Timmins to your Saperstein, or the um, Saperstein to your Timmins? Um, I, you know, let's think about that for a minute. I would be Saperstein. I, th- I don't know about that. I think that we both. I think we both have qualities of of both of them. Of both uh, uh, of. Uh, John Tavner, a.k.a. Do we know? Does Timmons have a first name? Yeah. John Timmons? He does call him John because later on in this episode, Rob says, you changed your last name. But it seems like he Mm -hmm. always goes by the name John, which I would do, too, if I were undercover. Yeah, Yeah, because let's face it. What we're learning is John cannot keep a lot of the details straight. So let's just go with John for every alias. Yeah, there are moments in this episode where... Were he using different fake names, it would have gotten really bad Mm -hmm. because he's got multiple storylines colliding, but everyone's calling him John. So it's at least sort of keeping the uh, the illusion going. Uh, This is episode five. I don't I don't even want to try to read the actual title. I'm just going to (laughs) say a sad man in costume, Andrew. That's right. Is in French, right? I'll try it. Monsieur Triste en Costume. I am, whether I'm a Saperstein or a Timmons, I tell you, I am the, out of the two of us, I am not the one who should have attempted that, but somebody had to, and I stepped up. That was a, you know what, though? That was a very Timmons move of you. Yeah, it was. You're right. That's one of the qualities I have of Timmons is that I will say French words I don't know how to pronounce, and Mm -hmm. I will strangle a guy. And I have put out a lot of questionable Craigslist. Yeah, yes, you have. And that's the Saperstein in me. <laughs> and you've been trying to sell me a kayak that I just yes. don't want. <laughs> well, it's a good ki- The ad said it's a good kayak. And uh, why am I standing this way? And why am I blocking this one part of it? That's not anything for you to be concerned about. Just move your hand. Uh, all right. So <laughs> this uh, this episode starts with the scene where John is killing the wrong person in the hotel room. This is a very minor thing, but on my notes I have, how did John end up in the rug? So I kind of, upon the first watching of this, which was like, I don't know, months ago for me, I didn't notice some of these little details, but 
it's like he shoots the wrong guy and then he's being carried out in a rug. I guess that after he shot the wrong guy, what the 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 prince's police or whatever came and got him and wrapped him up in a rug and took him out of there. That's my understanding. I don't think we get a good answer to that. I could be wrong. Drink every time I say I could be wrong. I don't think we get a good answer for that, though. I think that he, um, we, we just are supposed to fill in the blanks. This is a mission that went wrong. He kills an innocent, and then somehow he pays for that by getting captured and uh, being held in solitary. Yeah, um, which is, of course, where bad stuff starts to happen on the subject of which. And, of course, uh, a lot of the people listening to this show, they know about TBTL, our other podcast. Maybe there are a few people that don't. We did something on that show a few god was it all was it a year ago now we did the show for 24 straight hours but we would take breaks at the end of each hour more or less and in order to pad out the show we played the song American Pie by Don McLean which is used in this show as a manner of torture on John i had the thought watching this last night american pie is one of the top five—no, that's not true. Let me put it this way. American F- Pie is one of the least torturous songs I could think of to listen to over and over again. Where do you think it ranks in terms of songs you would not want to hear for two months straight? You think it's l- not torturous. You think it's actually— Not torturous. I'm Listen, I'm no fan of Don McLean. He seems actually like mm-hmm. kind, of a, um, kind of a jerk, honestly. But—and I, I don't think that the song is, you know, anything profound— but I don't think it's the worst. I can think of 10 songs off the top of my head that are I would way less like to hear than that. Um, if I were going to torture you, I'd play an Ornette Coleman song just right outside See, the cage. Just like a lot of a lot of uh, like I like it, but it's a lot of squawky duck sounding um, horns that I think would get on your nerves. It's kind of atonal. No. no, 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 no. You don't understand. I recently and this is not the podcast for this, but I recently got into a serious Alice Coltrane phase. Alice Coltrane, also known as Turi Yasang Tianada, that's her uh, Sanskrit name. She played. This is the most outside jazzy harp jazz music. You, it makes Ornette Coleman sound like she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Um, yeah. Are you familiar with Ornette Coleman? I am. You always use it as a reference of a thing I don't like, and I actually think I don't dislike it as much as you think I dislike it. Back to the American Pie thing, I think it's actually an interesting joke that, and I'm not even 100% sure of this because I'm not in the folk world, but I think it's an interesting joke that they pick a song that is ostensibly a folk song, you know, American Pie, that would be in the folk pop genre, and John is well into the folk world. We already know that. We're going to hear more of it during this episode. He gets into debates about... Neo folk chat rooms, right? Exactly. What's the name of the chat room he's in? Neo neo uh, neo classic or neo traditional neo traditional music, Um, and uh, and so I think it's a joke that maybe even most people wouldn't want to hear American Pie over and over and over again, but especially somebody who is a purist about folk music wouldn't want to hear this song because it's so kind of bubblegummy and corny. That's so I think that's layers there. Right. I just was thinking last night as I was watching it, and I was thinking, you know, it's it, first of all, at least the song is like nine minutes long. Because the shorter the song, the more repetitive yep, it is. Yep, I for thought two that months. too. Yeah. If the song is two minutes long, you're going to hear it how many more times over the course of two months? 
And it has a nice, you know, again, I'm not going to defend the lyrics. I think they're kind of corny. But it has a kind of a nice, I don't know, a nice relaxing uh, sort of vibe to it that I think, again, if they were to put on something by Pantera, that would be very challenging for me. If they were to put on something by Rob Zombie. As my mom once said about the Rolling Stones, which is hilarious, I never liked that hard rock. <laughs> um, <laughs> she like I We had... Go ahead. I'm not trying to turn this into TVTL. This is the show where we talk about the Amazon Prime show Patriot. But let me quickly mention that the other day when I was hanging out with my mom, I had to literally get the lyrics to the song Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones to prove to her that at no time does Mick Jagger say, I can't get a girl pregnant in the song. <laughs> because she's she has forever not liked the Rolling Stones and not liked them specifically because of that song where she claims Mick Jagger says, I can't even get a girl pregnant. And I'm like, Mom, that's not a lyric in that song. And I had to like literally show her the lyrics on my phone. And even then she was like, I don't know what version you're looking at, but I'm pretty sure he says it in the song. Could you ask her to play the song and just like stop it and pause it at the moment where he says it so we could examine what those lyrics are? Maybe it's like a magic eye thing where if we listen to it the right way, we'll see it. We'll hear it. Um, okay, so back to the uh, show Patriot, which we are here to talk about. Uh, a couple things that, that uh, sort of occurred to me before the opening credits even kick in. Uh, I thought it was interesting that John identifies when he's playing that music in the bar when Saperstein, I think, first meets him, first hears him. Mm -hmm. I've this time around caught the song he's singing is basically he's identifying with the people who have to build children's caskets. Yeah. And he's saying, try to keep it to a couple of drinks. And I'm like, man, this guy is like. You know, this dark stuff that he's dealing with, and that's that's I'm sure he feels a certain affinity with people that have to do something that's very, very grim. Yeah, is that the song where he's uh, just singing about how hard it is to sleep at night? And for example, like the people who make the caskets, or am I conflating yes. two different songs? And yeah, that he's is talking about one, get, yeah. trying to get a good night's sleep, which yeah. and, and that's almost exactly two months after he was captured. So it's like it literally appears that he was rolled up in the rug, put in the cage. They played American Pie for two months, and then they let him out, and he went directly to a open mic and started playing music about it. In Amsterdam, where we know that that's where he's kind of have – where he tries to begin his healing by smoking weed, staring at birds, and singing literal folk songs. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I <laughs> I love – this is classic Patriot. Uh, I love all of the conversation around Afternoon Spray. Mm-hmm. And and how un how how you know no one talks about afternoon spray and we'll see this I'm not I'm not spoiling anything but we'll see this coming up with the full breakfast the show will take something that is a concept no one has really thought of and then they will treat it like it's a thing everyone knows about mm -hmm. and I find it totally entertaining yeah breakfast breads is still and also we yeah. we start to see the emergence of cold one in this episode too which has become like. Uh, something that Genevieve and I joke around about around the house will be like cold one. We try to say it in whatever that it's not a Cockney accent, but whatever that um, where where is the bag man and his brother from? What Sands? What is the soccer team? Uh, Jaywick Sands. Jaywick. So he's got some sort of a Jaywick accent, I guess. Uh, and he says he keeps on saying cold one, cold one. And uh, yeah. he keeps oh saying God. that. And it became it became like an earworm for me. I love that guy so Me much. Too. He's like he's like if DJ Khaled was talented, <laughs> and like I and then you know because of course now I've seen the episode twice. The first time I watched it, I didn't exactly know what was going to happen. I guess I should have gotten too. wise when John pulls a guitar string off. But it's just like 
I'm so sad for him because he's such a sweet guy. And and by the way, I think objectively and measurably cooler than Cool Rick. No offense. Interesting. You I know they're supposed so. to be the same person, but in terms of being the same person, I think he's cooler than Cool Rick. I don't know why. Maybe it's the accent. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm not. Ar- I'm not arguing with you. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not arguing the point. I'm just surprised to hear it. I guess I would withhold judgment myself because I don't think we see as much of him. Um, sure. I mean, may, you mean I, I guess from an outward point of view, if you were going to pass one of these people on a sidewalk, you wouldn't look at uh, Cool Rick and think that guy is cool. You would pass this guy and you would think, oh, that looks like a cool guy. Kind of looks like a tough, cool guy. I mean, if I was going to hang out, if I was going to have ah. a cold one uh-huh. on a boat where hopefully my brother wasn't being garroted with guitar strings, if I was going to hang out for an afternoon with someone, I would much rather it was uh, uh, it was that guy's brother, the big J. Wick Sands fan, mm-hmm. rather than Cool Rick. Yeah. And I don't know why, because the whole premise is that – I mean, that's one of the things, too. I just said that I love how they – they sort of uh, treat afternoon spray like it's a thing. You know, it's just that afternoon spray. It's not the night. It's not the morning. Um, w- they also go with this premise that uh, sort of like everything that, that, that everybody – things don't maybe rhyme, but they sound the same. Or There's a there's a famous phrase like history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. This idea that, of course, the bag man will have a brother who's like Rick. I mean, that's the whole – that's basically what Tom Tavener is saying. Go find his cool Rick. He's going to have one. And I'm like, is he? I don't know if I buy that premise, but okay, I guess we're going with that. Yes. This for me, and you know, the first time I watched this episode, there were still so many things I didn't know, and I was so confused. And so watching this particular episode a second time, it makes so much more sense to me what they're saying and what the story is. Um, and they lay it all out. They're saying this, this guy, this bagman, must live a parallel life to you. So therefore, we can assume he's going to do certain things. And, and now that and I he has a doofy brother, <laughs> and he must have a doofy brother who's here because everything is fucked up, as they say. Um, but you know what? Like for me, rewatching this, I'm like, this is where you know, like there is there is a. a there are magical forces sort of in this mm. show or magical thinking mm-hmm. or like we let's even stop nitpicking on some of the things like, well, does that add up? Because here you're like, OK, they're inventing a universe here. They're creating a universe where this thing that you would you could never count on this in real life. It makes no sense in the real world. But this is the universe they're creating here. So now you're like, oh, OK, OK, we're just going to follow your rules show, which I like. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm in for it. And and I rarely do that with shows. I'm mm-hmm. far too attached to what I think of as reality. And when things get magical or mystical or unexplained, I usually check out. But I am I'm committed to this show, and I'm happy to live in their universe where it's a given that the bagman who's having this kind of parallel experience to John and is kind of miserable on the boat, and the brothers like just have one cold one, like one beer, like he's. Uh, I, I I totally buy it as a thing in the universe of this show. And can I uh, can I just jump in and say now and now that I had a better understanding of what was going on, like I remember that. I mean, we're kind of all over the place. So if you don't mind me just jumping ahead, we've acknowledged the fact that John is going to kill the bag man. He's going to choke him with this guitar string on the ferry. 
Um, now that I had a fuller understanding of what's going on and the parallels between the two families, the killing of the Bagman hit me on an emotional level so mm-hmm. much more than yeah. the first time. I remember being very shocked. It's it's you know quietly violent, as a lot of the John scenes are when when they get violent. There's a quietness about them and a starkness, and I remember being shocked by it. But this time, now that it's, they've built up this dynamic, that like oh well, you got this guy. I can't remember his name. The the cool Rick equivalent, the Bagman's brother. And now that you realize, oh, these guys are stand-ins or mirrors of John and Edward and, or Cool Rick or whatever, and you start to understand the uh, the relationship and the love that is probably there as well, that made me really sad to see him die. You know, the guy that yeah. is on the opposite side of our heroes. I'm not even as sad for, for the bag man, for the guy who gets mm-hmm. strangled. I'm so sad for his brother. Yeah, yeah. When he walks back with those two beers— you know, and he's just so confused and he's just like your heart breaks for him because he was, you know, it, you know, I don't need to explain it to the viewers. They understand it. But it's just like a very, you know, that was yeah, that was a really wrenching scene to watch because of just thinking about how bereft the brother is going to be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another great moment in Leslie Claret. Let's close things that close. <laughs> just let's keep it just, just shape. Like, is that what he says to I, I, I maybe I he I just noted that he's like, you know, he's obviously he's trying to be sober. He's upset because the mini the mini bar fridge has swung open the door and he can see alcohol and it's very uh, tempting for him. And he calls down and it's like, you know, just some poor sap at the front desk has nothing to do with what's going on in the room. And he's saying, let's close things that close. It's like this weird Leslie way of speaking that I just I, I find very entertaining and and I love it. It's so it's it's overly formal in a certain way. Let me play this scene. So he's we see him. Uh, the scene opens. He's staring what looks like directly at the camera. You don't know what the problem is. He's wearing his <laughs> Yale. Did sweatshirt. he go to Yale? I assume. I assume there's something I find funny about him just wearing that yell, that classic yell sweatshirt. And then you realize, oh, he's staring at a refrigerator full of booze, which represents temptation. He slowly picks up the phone. Reception. Housekeeping. Is this housekeeping? Yes, how may I help you? I'm in the Electress of Saxony room. Let's not leave the room fridge open in the future here. I I am sorry? My fridge. Let's get ship shape. (laughs) Let's close the things that close, okay? (laughs) The fridge was left open? Yes. I'll make a note of it. I'd appreciate it. I look forward to better service. I that that line really stuck with me too. Like he's so upset and he's dressing them down, yet he's doing it in this really polite but direct way. Like the language he uses is kind of polite. I look I look forward to better service. I like made a note because I am somebody who likes to gripe to customer service people. (laughs) Uh, If he called it a polite fridge, I would know we were really onto some (laughs) parallels with your life. Again, if you are only a McMillan men. Listener, go listen to TBTL and that joke will go listen to 3,000 episodes mm-hmm. of our other show somewhere. and that joke will be buried in there somewhere. Um, also, I didn't realize this, but I guess does John speak French because he speaks to Agathe's daughter in French? Or he seems to at least understand what she's saying and he speaks a little French to her. Yeah, he must. And, and I that that kind of makes sense for me. I remember 
watching this the first time and thinking, oh, will he know it or not? And then when he did, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. International spy. You must know some languages. Or you better. Right. And actually, French is the default setting in a number of, like, in uh, Brussels, places like that. I think that he's, you know, he's Luxembourg, I believe. Oh, boy, I'm going to regret that if that's not right. But I think that I think that French is quite literally the lingua franca in a lot of those places, mm-hmm. and so it would make sense that he kind of has picked it up. Um, so he talks to Aget's kid. He's in Aget's house because he's trying to get that stupid CD, right? Is oh that's what he's trying to do? Okay, so I assume that so, makes right? Sense. That's what he's that's what he's trying because he he you know he, he's started the episode. He's he's well, I guess the episode started actually with him uh, in the rug, but. Uh, Aget has found him lying on the street, but unless I'm misremembering, we don't get a huge explanation on that, uh, right? Because he, he he lies down on the street to try to get Aget's attention, but it, he's not successful in getting the CD. So he Wait, doesn't then he, tries he, to break. He faints at the end of the last one, right? Doesn't right. just pick up yeah, to get her attention? Is that what you said? Did I misunderstand what you were saying? I thought he was trying to get her attention. Oh, you think, you know what, this is so interesting. I'm not saying you're wrong. I think I read the end of last episode after he's been carrying that dude around in the backpack mm-hmm. forever. I think I thought, and, and I think you're actually right, it makes so much more sense. In my mind, he collapsed to get her attention to try to get the CD back from her. Um, but he probably just collapsed from exhaustion. That's a much more logical scenario. I think so. Yeah, Yeah. because also we now know that him walking through that crowd of people hopping had a real emotional toll on him. He thought he was hallucinating it. We find out in this episode he confesses that he's (laughs) seeing things. And then his dad explains to him that, no, there is some hopping tradition in this city. So I think that, I mean, at the end of that just excruciating episode where he went through so much physical and emotional kind of... I don't know, a stress, and I think he just collapses, yes. yeah. Okay, that would make more sense, because it was a weird strategy for getting for trying to get the CD back, um, if that's what he was doing, which is what I was thinking. So, basically, he's try- I think he's trying to get this CD out of her house. That's why he goes into the house, and that's when the kid sees him, and uh, I guess he sees himself as a murderer, right? He identifies as a murderer, but he does not kill kids. Yeah, it's funny how he doesn't lie about that, right? A little kid says to him, yeah. are you a murderer? Keeping in mind, she just learned what murder is a few episodes yeah. ago, this cute little girl. Uh, so she says, are you a murderer? And he says, yes. And, you know, I forgot that he says yes to that. And mm-hmm. it uh, it, it kind of shocked me anew hearing him. It's like, I don't know, man. Not to sorry, if permission to jump all over the place, it's hard to get inside of John's head because sometimes we really see the emotional toll his actions take, and and it's not just strangling a dude on a ferry. It's also when he messes with people's emotions, when he has to blow an air horn into a guy's ear just to cause mm-hmm. you know trigger PTSD. Like that hurts him almost as much as killing somebody hurts him. Um, yet he didn't. Well, I guess maybe at Maybe he comes around at first when he's sort of psychologically torturing Stephen uh, Chu, right? Isn't that his last name? Mm-hmm. That character, Stephen Chu, yeah. when he's trying to get the helmet off of him. He's trying yes. to get Stephen to take his own helmet off by messing yeah. with him. He's suffering from brain which, damage, which, of course. Yeah, um, which is interesting to me. I'll, I'll let you finish, and then I'll uh, yeah. throw in something on that. Okay, so anyway, just a quick reminder, if you haven't seen the episode in a while, for some reason he's trying to steal the special helmet that the brain-damaged Stephen Chu has to wear for several hours a day. And so he starts saying, hey, man, I heard you've been bragging about how you can comb your own hair. 
and everybody says you're a liar, and I came up here to show them that you're not a liar. And so he finally convinces Stephen, uh, who he's convinced his own name is Eugene somehow, um, uh, to take off his helmet. And, and, like, and he's convinced, he's convinced uh, Stephen that his name is not John. Oh, right, which is especially important, right? <laughs> Just to keep screwing with his poor little brain. And probably so that things can't get traced back to John. If he says some guy named mm-hmm. Ted came into my room, I think he uses the word or the name Ted. But anyway, he didn't seem as tortured in messing with Stephen. I feel like he actually yeah. has a bit of real animosity towards Stephen. Uh, I could be wrong about, about that, though. I'm just judging by kind of facial expression. And later on, when we see him in the elevator holding the the helmet, I guess he does look a little remorseful. But it's funny how. It, the, it seems like he has less problems fucking with this kid who's like super innocent and who he caused the brain damage of. He tried to kill him. Yeah, because I was trying to create this kind of consistent, I don't know, operating system in John's brain, which was if he's strangling the bag man who's part of this world of subterfuge and moving money and trying to get, you know, nuclear weapons or something. I don't think he feels a ton of regret about killing that guy. It's like that guy's that guy's playing the game. It's like he doesn't you don't feel bad about tackling. You're playing football and you're tackling somebody who's trying to run the ball. Like they're all in on. You don't run into the stands though and tackle someone because they're not playing in the game. Mm-hmm. So that's why I feel like when he does the horns, he looks like he's really dreading it. I think that has to do with his kind of PTSD and him being emotionally fragile himself. But the Stephen thing is weird to me because it doesn't fit into that pattern because poor steven has done absolutely nothing wrong he is as you said he's the way he is because of something john did and then john uh you know doesn't seem to have any compunction about messing with him uh which is weird yes and we don't know yet why he was stealing the helmet right well there was something about i mean there was a a, the the gill wanted to put John on a different account or like John had done so well in that presentation that in the elevator he's saying, hey, let's put him on this thing. And and uh, and I think that Leslie is saying, well, that's Stevens or whatever. And mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know if he's trying to seal the deal with that. I don't know if he's trying to make it more or less likely that he has to take on that other account. I don't really understand the premise of why he's stealing Stevens helmet. But I, I, I'm just filing it under generally fucking with him so that he does not advance in the company and take John's spot on the travel team and also so that he does not figure out that John's the one who pushed him into traffic. Yeah, that's interesting because I figured – and yeah, I, we might I, – I'm embarrassed. I've watched this uh, series already and I just can't remember. I feel like there's a physicality with that helmet. I feel like he needs that helmet. I, I feel like it's it's not just messing with his head. And I thought it might have something to do with the guy who's taped up, the Brazilian guy that he's got all taped up, but that it doesn't mm-hmm. come to fruition there. And it is funny, like when John's in the elevator and he learns that he's going to have to give another presentation, he doesn't look like he wants to. It's like, you're right, there's yeah. like, in a certain way, maybe that makes him more valuable, so he stays on the travel team, which is really important. But on the other hand, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just, that means he has to memorize another hour of gibberish. Yeah. Of uh, sprat flange or yeah. whatever the hell. Um, Ichabod is uh, now kind of becoming, <laughs> I love that freaking weird-ass zip-up sweatshirt they have Ichabod in. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not. goes all the way around the hood. I know. 
It's so weird. I've actually seen those. I don't know in what universe you would need that particular design, oh but I have God. seen that. I've seen that style of shirt in the wild, if you can believe it. Uh, it's uh, so, so funny. It's weird, and of course they're doing it intentionally, but I mean he is so weird looking in that elevator in that outfit. He is leaning so hard into his Ichabodness, and yet he is so put off. <laughs> By the idea that people think his last name Ichabod is surprising, I know it's the most of the humor from the scene comes uh, through the visuals. But if you don't mind, it's not long. So much of this yeah. episode happens in elevators. I love the elevator bits, and I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying we're not going to see more insides of elevators in later episodes. But I like that each episode episode kind of has a theme like this. Like they're going to do a lot of humor in elevators in this episode, and in this one, Ichabod comes in just looking ridiculously like Ichabod Crane. John, why'd you ask if my last name, Ichabod, was the nickname? I didn't. Yes, you did, John. You mentioned that. You said, I quote, hey, what's your last name, Peter, anyway? I said, Ichabod. You said, I thought that was the nickname. Why did you think that? Just no reason. Is it because I look like I live in an enchanted forest in a grim fairy tale wearing a cloak or some such? (laughs) No. Or, yeah, I guess. Honestly, Peter, but not in a bad way. (laughs) And then somebody else gets on the (laughs) elevator. Oh, my God. This was a especially funny episode, I think. The last episode yeah. really takes a lot out of you uh, as a viewer. He's just like, John is going through so much. Uh, and this episode, actually, by the way, very high smile count for John. Yes, in this episode. I've got smile alert. Yes. Dad hug. My yes. note says. Um, uh, by the way, Julian Richings is the is the actor who plays. Peter Ichabod, and I'm just looking up. He's he's an English-born Canadian actor, and he played Death on the show Supernatural, which my friend oh. Misha is plays uh, uh, the uh, character. Uh, one of the he plays an angel on that show. I bet you Misha knows this guy. I should ask him. Uh, I don't know what how how is Julian Richings to be around, and is he super weird? Let's get Ichabod Probably on not. the show. Yeah. We could. I, I think it would be within our abilities. if we Maybe in season two or I don't know. If at some point we start to, start to do interviews, I think we could – I bet you we could get Julian on. He lives in Toronto apparently. We can get him on the phone maybe. Um, so this was a um, – well, let's try – I'll just try to keep this going chronologically. So there's this very stressful elevator scene where you've got the Barros brothers <laughs> and Rob Saperstein and Ichabod and John and it's just like – there were two scenes where I have to say, like the drunk scene where John and Rob are like kind of just running wild in the streets and like starting fights or maybe ending fights and then running upstairs. That is a perfect – that perfectly captures the, per, the the feeling of being drunk in a city mm. when you're having fun and you're having an adventure. Like they nail that. Uh, I've been on many drunk adventures in cities, and like I just thought that that tonally was really good. And then as a person who is in my life been fairly sketchy at times, I've never been in something like that elevator scene, but I can feel the tension of like 
these people are not supposed to be meeting right now. Yes. Like, that is a bad feeling, and they do a really good job of setting up that dynamic. And going back to John Smiles, which we're obsessed with because he's so withholding, or the show is so withholding right. of Smiles. Well, yeah, I don't him. know if he's withholding. I think he's incapable yeah. because of his trauma. But we see a lot of him in the flashbacks because, first of all, we see him smiling when he's stoned. Like, he's totally self-medicating yeah. with the marijuana. We see him yeah. do some legit smiles out there while he's recovering in the flashbacks. When um, Rob... When he reunites with Rob, even though it it is a very stressful scene on that elevator and the, mm-hmm. Rob is about to blow his cover, I still think John can't help but to break into that big, dumb smile because he yeah. truly has love for Rob. And that's that's yeah. like part of the tragedy of the John character. What makes the show so good is the dynamics of like John is just all heart, and but he's being yeah. forced to be a killer. And Rob's the – I mean, I guess arguably the Macmillan people know John from a different world. But Rob is like one of the only people who is – there's nothing about his existence and his relationship with John that's related to all of this dark shit that John has to do. This is the – this is only happiness. And there's actually a, a cute moment where when John wakes up, when when he cra- when he crashes out, like after their their night of playing music and – learning afternoon spray and getting drunk and all that there's this moment where john wakes up they're both basically pass out drunk john wakes up and he goes rob are you still here and like rob is still there and Mm -hmm. i thought oh that's like a guy who really needs human connection you know Mm -hmm. and so i think there's so you're right i think that there's a really strong bond there even though rob is (laughs) kind of a mess but um uh so that elevator seat is like extremely stressful then we get to the barrows brothers uh this great scene where dennis is translating from the other room. <laughs> cla- right. Classic Dennis move where he's like, he gets the room next to John. He asked for it. By the way, the rooms of the hotel play- are, are, are almost characters. You know, they, they, they intentionally are constantly, and I can't say them off the top of my head, but they're constantly, I mean, when, when, um, uh, Leslie calls down, he says what room he's in. Everyone's saying, what's it called? The King Oscar or something? Yeah, I think so. Everyone's talking about the King Oscar. It's where we stay. It's it's good. And, like, everyone's staying there. Everyone's staying in these, like, fun, like, oddly named rooms, which are referenced a lot to each other. Um, it's just kind of the, the hotel seems to loom. And you said a lot of the shots are in elevators. Mm-hmm. The hotel looms large in this. So you get that scene where they're trying to negotiate with the Barrows brothers. And um, and, and Dennis is – I actually, to be honest with you, Dennis's translation was better than I expected. Like, he did throw in some F-words. <laughs> He tried to put a little Dennis stank on it, yeah, but he is did. generally do. I was expecting Dennis is such a nincompoop. I was expecting him to be, be like that ad that's running right now where the guy says, I speak a little Danish or whatever it is. And then he's totally mistranslating in the business. Meeting. Oh, yeah. That's a really uh, funny commercial. I was expecting uh, that. And no, Dennis actually does speak Portuguese and actually is more or less translating the message of what they're saying. Yes. Um, and uh, I apologize. But this goes again, moving way forward to a scene, but still like kind of this dynamic that that uh, Dennis can hear what's going on in John's room comes up again later. He even says like, oh, yeah, I can translate through the door because I made sure that our rooms are next to each other. And John kind of grins a little bit at that. We know that, you know, Dennis just wants to be best friends with John, but John also kind of is loving Dennis the same way that he kind of loves his brother, I think, and is seeing him as a real ally. So he kind of gets a kick out of that and appreciates it. And then later on, when his dad shows up in Luxembourg to surprise him, and like you said, we get another smile there when they hug in the hallway. (laughs) And then later on, (laughs) 
this is again one of my this is a great laugh line in the episode we forget that dennis is in the other room and probably listening to everything they're saying and uh and tom is saying to john we got to go out we got to have a good time and then edward says can i come with you and he said well it wouldn't be a good time if you didn't come with us which is such a really sweet thing to say and then you hear the muffled voice of dennis coming from the other room can i come too (laughs) it's so sweet this is a I have to say, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a noted anti Tom Tavner. Uh whatever the opposite of a stan is, I do not stand Tom Tavner. Mm-hmm. I do not stand him. Maybe that's what it is. You just add a D and it yeah. means you don't like the person. Uh I had a moment where I was thinking, okay, maybe he's winning me over. And it's the moment when uh John is more or less apologizing for being on the C D cover. Mm-hmm. And that's a little backstory. I think I think Tom says something like, there's no pictures of you since you were 19 or something, which mm-hmm. is also just like, you know, <laughs> this is a weird comparison to make. But people who are marginalized in our current current culture talk about being disappeared, you know, or ma- made invisible. And this is the thing where, like, I didn't even think about the one of the, you know, I don't see John going to a glamour shots shoot, even if he was just into piping. But he can't even have a picture taken of him for mm-hmm. his whole adult life. I mean, that's that's that sucks. Like, you know, like that that's the kind of level of secrecy and subterfuge. So then By the way, who took that work- picture? That that's I mean, I, I think ah, I think the show question. purposely doesn't address that because I think it's just a flight of fancy sort of. We see uh-huh. early on uh Rob and John like kind of practice posing for the picture, doing yeah. that Simon and Garfunkel parody album uh, cover look, looking over their shoulders. But they specifically say, let's practice it. So we know that there's nobody behind them with a camera. When you look at the actual album cover, whenever it does get taken, it's kind of almost, um, it's taken in a way that it almost seems like somebody would have to be on a ladder. It's kind of above oh, really? them a little bit. Am I, I not right about that? I assume that the thing... I'm not saying you're wrong. My read on things was that that moment on the street where they turn around is the moment the picture's actually taken. But I don't know who would be taking the photo, and maybe you're right. Maybe the actual CD cover is from a higher angle. I had kind of imagined somehow that that photo ended up happening out on that street. Well, they're dressed in the right. They're definitely dressed in the right clothes for it to be the actual moment. But I, I swear the dialogue. And we actually just listen to this because why not? What else else we have to do? I'm just getting there uh, to it now. But I think he says something like, "Well, let's practice it." Okay, let's practice. Yeah, they, yeah, they definitely practice it. My sense was that my. I just thought that then after they practice it, then it really happens. But, oh, okay. I, well, I then I can't say that for a fact. Then, well, I'll just play it anyway. I don't know if we yeah, really play it. need Let's to. Yeah, play it. Let's hear it. Wistfully back at the camera. You want to practice? You think we need to practice that? Yeah, I think we need to practice. It's our album cover. We need to do it right. Okay. Okay, one, two, three. They look over, and then the theme song begins. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then little boys dance next to their motorcycles, which is which gets me. I want to know if we ever get Stephen Conrad on the show. I want to know what the casting process was like for the kids in the opening credits. Ah, uh, yeah, good question. Like because I, I want to know who are those kids? Did they know how to ride motorbikes? How long did it take them to do that? To learn how to do that thing with the bikes, the jig, the shooting of the gun, the whole thing. Are they really brothers? Do they live in Texas? I I want to know about the kids in the credits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's for my spinoff show, Macmillan Kids, where it's a whole show about the, the young Tavner boys. Uh, but what I was going to say is I find – you know, Tom Tavner has this moment of just absolute just love, lovely father – fathering? Lovely fathering? Is that a thing? Where he says to John, you know, 
basically, I effed this entire thing up. I gave the money to the wrong person. All you did was you were just in a photo. And I was like, go, Tom. Good job. And then later he's like, go kill him. Yeah, I know. I knew <laughs> that, that, like, that huh? go kill And I'm like, easy for you to say, jerk. Yeah, that's where he really just says, you have to kill him. And he just, you know, and I was thought of you immediately because I was like, yeah, <laughs> here he is pushing John to the edge of, of his sanity again by forcing him to do these things. My favorite part during that conversation, uh, John has just explained to him the concept of afternoon spray, which is totally ridiculous. Yes. And then a few minutes later in the conversation, he's like, hey, man, I've effed up too, man. I've made huge mistakes and I wasn't even in this afternoon splash <laughs> <laughs> i love it uh let's see i have some notes here that now i'm trying to remember exactly the context for them uh do we want to talk about the is he have we have we decided is he the physicist is the wife the woman who wants to watch the disney programming is she the wife of the physicist or the bag man i don't think she's Oh, it never even occurred to me she was the bag potentially the bagman's wife. I assume she was the physicist's wife. I think but so too. I, I know that I had the called question. Omi Shade. Um, I had that question too. I was like, oh wait, is she the wife of the bagman or the physicist? I think the physicist. Yeah. Um, anything about her jump out at you? That scene was kind of interesting. This uh, again, because I've seen the show, I know a little bit more about what's going to happen to her eventually. But I thought it was interesting, you know, this sort of cultural thing of, of, of basically like her wanting to watch a Disney movie and but her wanting it to be on in the room, I guess, maybe because she doesn't want to see anything else. She doesn't want to be corrupted by anything else. Yeah, that's my understanding of it as well. And again, like this is the, sh the show's calling card is that they give everybody layers, right? And texture mm -hmm. and, and not just um, and, and even this person who's been, you know, regarded as a pretty kind of shadowy figure because she's draped head to toe in traditional garb, right? Which to the Western eye can seem sort of like it can seem off putting to us uh, without being xenophobic about it. It just it's not a look that we're used to around here. We're so not familiar you, with. Yeah. That. And so when you're looking at somebody who all you can see is their eyes, it gives you a feeling. And um, and then to sort of now we're starting to see that, OK, now her her, now, her character is starting to open up. It's starting to bloom a little bit as far as our perspective, and we're getting to see her complexities. And so, yeah, she must be – my interpretation of it, I don't know if I'm right, but is that, okay, she is in the United States, and she must be overwhelmed a little bit with the curiosity of, of the West. I'm sorry. I said she's in the United States. She's clearly not in the United States, but she's in a Western country and has access yep. to the, the American culture. And uh, and so she wants to taste a little bit of it, but she's trying to not get pulled in too deep. So, yeah, that's why she wants it turned on in her room. I also like the way that I it made this scene made me think that I need to ask for more things, especially like at hotels, because he didn't even blink an yeah. eye. He's like, yeah, customer's always right. We'll make sure that the uh, yeah. what is the uh, movie she wants to watch? I can't remember. It's about the little girl. Uh, it's. I think it's a – does she name it specifically? I just remember it being a Disney. Yeah. Maybe maybe she had a specific Disney movie she wanted to watch. Definitely. Because remember he, she makes him list them and then he has to describe them. Oh. One of them is Wreck-It Ralph. One of oh, them is right. something three. <laughs> yeah. and I can't remember. I thought it was strange that she said, let's turn things on that turn on. Yeah. That, was, <laughs> that, that would seemed, be – that was a weird direction to the hotel. You're right, though. Like the hotel staff is pretty much like, "Hey, whatever you, whatever you need, we'll. I'll talk to somebody about that refrigerator door being open, crazy yep. guy." And also, 
absolutely will go in there and turn on, uh, you know, Mulan or whatever yeah. Disney programming I'm getting, you were interested in watching. I'm getting very close. Your Disney choices, according to the subtitles, would be... Why don't okay. I just turn it up? Beverly Hills yeah, yeah. Chihuahua 3. <laughs> Beverly Hills Tangled Chihuahua and Tangled, that's Brown. the one. Right. And what are they concerning? Well, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, that's probably about dogs. Tangled is about a young woman on an adventure, it looks like, from the trailer. And I don't know for this other one. <laughs> and uh, again, great acting, great directing. We only see a close-up of her face, but again, all we see are her eyes kind of reacting yeah. to the, the titles. And when he says, yeah. Chihuahua, that one must be about dogs, she looks confused. Like, why would there be a movie about dogs? That guy, by the way, that front desk guy actually is in a lot of these episodes because he's the guy that tells uh, Saperstein that uh, John has been there. He's a kind of he's he's sort of the front desk guy that most of the time when people are coming into this King Oscar, they're talking to him. And I just love hotel tropes, sort of, or I don't know if trope is the right mm-hmm. word, but on, yeah. on the airplane recently, I watched um, what's the Wes Anderson one? Uh, oh. Oh, yes, shoot. That one. <laughs> it's got hotel in the title, and I can't think of the name of it. Um, hotel Transylvania 3. Exactly, which I watch right after Wreck-It Ralph. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I love things that take place. There's a... Well, you know me. Even in real life, I'm kind of yeah. Obsessed your with dream hotels. would be to run a yeah. hotel, right? And there's like something. A small one. And there's something magical about the way hotels like this are portrayed in movies. You know, I even think of Four Rooms, which I probably doesn't hold up, but yeah. I loved that in the '90s. The Grand Budapest. Grand Budapest Hotel. We were thank you. Thinking of yes. Um, there's also this moment where liar is written on the door. Mm-hmm. That's Stephen, right? No. Oh. Do we want to give it away to the people who are watching with us? Because, I mean, I know who it Did, is. The reveal comes I, maybe next episode or two episodes ago. Well, don't reveal it because I'm one of them. I apparently okay. have some kind of amnesia. I assumed – it's funny. I've watched it, and I don't remember it. I thought that that was maybe Steven having a moment of, like, full lucidity or something. But it's somebody else. I guess we'll find out next episode. Yeah. Yeah, I know who it is. Unless, okay. boy, this would be another one where if I'm if I'm wrong about this, I, but no, no, it's a whole. It becomes a big part of the um, of the plot that somebody really has it in for John, somebody whom we have met. But I won't spoil it oh, for you. But yeah. oh, of course, now I remember. Right, it. Now I remember. Right, right, right. Who it is. Um, but I'll, I'll 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 let the people that are watching episode by episode experience it. But uh, for the first time, can I say this? You know, speaking of me saying stupid shit, um, oh, no. I wanted to start this show by saying this. It's been driving me crazy. We, I, it's, I think it's okay to say this now. We recorded Macmillan Men number three and number four on the same day, but then released them a week apart. But I made, a, I, I said something that was categorically untrue in episode three. I've been hearing from a lot of people. Both is within. that why they wrote liar on the door? <laughs> is that about you? <laughs> That's right. I will say the first person who gave me this piece of feedback uh, was Genevieve, my wonderful par- mm. partner Genevieve, who is apparently a P1 for Macmillan Men, which just makes me Whoa. feel very happy. Yeah. But um, I made the argument that Leslie was the founder of the Macmillan Company. 
That is not true. Oh. He started a piping company. He did not That's start. That's what I the, thought. Yes. No, no, no. You were right. You were. Let's <laughs> give you a double bell. I apologize Thank for you. arguing double otherwise. Um, <laughs> there's just like a lot of evidence around it uh, kind of indicating that that is yeah, not no. the case. And then specifically, oh. listener Sean said um, he didn't start Macmillan. He started one of the other companies competing for the Denon project, which he mentioned specifically in season two when he gives his big speech. So oh, n- not just okay. circumstantial evidence but actual evidence that i was totally wrong and the more i thought about it i was like oh yeah that that can't that can't why would it be called mcmillan why wouldn't it be called right you know, leslie and the boys hey speak speak <laughs> which is what i would name no, that's a, that's the piping company i would go with <laughs> if I, for all of your piping needs <laughs> needs call leslie and the boys i could see it having like a, a hyper local ad like favinger plumbing uh-huh. here in bellingham where i live that the, their their logo is or their sort of claim to fame is that the, the the owner of the company he drives a white Vita Bug and he's always oh. driving it in the commercials. I could see Leslie and the boys having just a hilariously local. Stop freaking! Call Leslie and the boys. <laughs> I couldn't Some think of, of his last name, so that's why I went with it. it's Leslie Claret, right? Claret. Yeah, yeah. As our friend, as our friend Steve Newman, aka the Stewbot, is called. On Twitter currently, and this will probably oh, change yeah. by the time this gets out, Leslie Claret Appreciator. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, I'm glad I could um, Claret things up. hey oh man. Oof, that could oof, be a possible oof. show title for this. Um, let's see. Uh, I, speaking of listener feedback, I know that you had an email that, that had piqued your interest or you thought was worth reading. Should we just jump into that? Right here, right now. Yeah. Time. This is about the music. Of course, music plays a huge role in the show. Uh, we got to hear uh, Afternoon Spray at the beginning of this episode or Afternoon Splash. I wasn't even in an Afternoon Splash when I made my decision. Um, I mean, am I the only person that when I see Afternoon Spray, I think of Afternoon Delight and I almost want to say Afternoon Spray and do that like little that little note run that they do for Afternoon Delight? When I was first watching this, I assumed that that was a playoff of that in some way, but I don't know that it is because it's not the right genre, right? Like it I definitely, isn't. I, I think the same thing, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're playing on something that I'm not getting there, or if it's just a coincidence. But um, pardon me, I'm doing that John Mulaney thing where I'm trying not to burp. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, this email came in about um, the debate. That John is getting into with somebody named Greg 12 on a message board somewhere. We heard about this in the last episode. Uh, And he says that he's arguing with some kid named Greg 12 over the song Poncho and Lefty, um, which uh, is a Towns Van Zant song. And uh, but uh, Willie Nelson does a version of it. And there's a little bit more depth to it. I got this email from several people, but I really like the way that um, Tony in Austin lays this out. He says in episode four. it seems like the right place to be checking in. Yes. Not that Towns Van Sant was necessarily from Austin, but like this is regionally a person who's going to know about this kind of music in my mind. Right. Well, he is from Texas, right? I think that comes up in this email. So I think so. Fellow Macmillan man here, just a couple of thoughts on the music <laughs> in the first four episodes. In episode four, the debate over Poncho and Lefty is not an uncommon one in the folk country world. Traditionalists maintain that Towns Van Zandt, who wrote the song, did it best, and that Willie and Merle Haggard's cover, while indisputably more popular from a sales standpoint and an audience standpoint, was too polished and the 80s production distracted from its story in his debate with greg 12 john takes up the traditional (laughs) argument that willie ruined it 
Don't fight with Willie. I'm not fighting with Willie. Uh, it may be simply <laughs> coincidental. with Greg 12. <laughs> it may be simply coincidental, but in episode number one, the song that John and Tom play together on their guitars is also a Towns Van Sant song, If I Needed You. There may be a little father-son symbology in these lyrics. If I needed you, would you come to me? Would you come to me and ease my pain you can imagine that the next lines might be if i needed you would you hold my bike or would you let me go and watch me crash yeah. i don't know or if there would are... you make me go and kill a guy right i don't know if there are any other uh towns van zant songs in the rest of the series but i'll be listening for them it may be as simple as Stephen conrad wanting to show his texas roots bona fides but i thought it oh, was at least marginally interesting so that's, can i that's play a little bit of the t- i don't know if this is this looks like a live version, but it also has 5 million views, so maybe this is the most popular. Can I play a little bit of the Towns Van Zant version? Yeah. Just because, why not? Sorry, this is from YouTube, so the audio quality is probably crummy. Living on the road, my friend Was gonna keep you free and clean Now you wear your skin like iron and you as hard as kerosene You weren't your mama's only son But her favorite one it seems She began to cry when you said goodbye You sank into your dreams Look, I honestly don't even know if I've heard the Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard one But I'm willing to say this is the better version now is this the actual recorded? Did I hear somebody coughing in that, or is this a is this an interesting? Yeah, line? this is live. Okay, so I don't know if this is this is clearly not the whatever ones put out on the um, radio, if you will. Mm-hmm. But it also has, like I said, it has five million views, and so I wondered if maybe it's a famous version of it. Mm. I don't know what I don't know enough about Towns Van Sant other than, and I mentioned this to another person who emailed in about I can't remember if it was related to McMillanman or not, but. That movie Blaze, which is a biopic about Blaze Foley, it features uh, a, a person portraying Towns Van Zant, and it's incredible. Mm. The movie's incredible, and that guy's perform. I think everybody's performance in that movie is incredible. Again, I talked about it on TBTL. If you're a guy of a certain age who's wired the way I am, don't see the movie with your wife and daughter because you may just sob <laughs> the entire film, which is what I did. Um. So uh, I'm trying to remember. Do we? Uh, it's so much of this series I've forgotten, sadly. But that's why it's actually been really fun to rewatch it, pick up some new things. Do we meet Greg Twelve? I don't think we ever meet Greg Twelve. I kept waiting for somebody to be Greg Twelve, like Rob to be Greg Twelve. But that's you know one of those things that's probably like a little too. I don't know, maybe too expected in a way or something. Like maybe that's the Stephen Conrad doesn't want to. By the way, speaking of, sorry, real quick digression on Stephen Conrad, I've been also really getting into, I've been trying to actually like, I've been trying to uh, hold off on watching too much of Perpetual Grace Limited, his other show, because I, I don't, I don't want to confuse everybody in my mind. And, um, but there's the song for Perpetual Grace Limited, the theme song for season one anyway, which is maybe the only one they're on, is awesome. I love it. And I looked up who it was. It's like Stephen Conrad's band. Oh, really? Is Jeremy yeah. Renner in there? <laughs> Happy Ren's Day. <laughs> uh, no, but I liked it. So I, I guess my point is that Stephen Conrad's obviously a very musical person. And music is, is obviously huge to him. 
as I said incorrectly on the first episode, but has since been corrected, the Vashti Bunyan, Bunyan song for this first season is just the last song I would ever expect a show mm-hmm. like this to have. Well, a show that is about CIA operatives to have, and yet it somehow just totally works for the show. I don't know if that's just because it's what I associate with the program, but I do love the use of music on the show. I just looked this up just really quickly. I haven't seen any Perpetual Grace Limited, but um, th- so it's performed, and it's written by uh, and performed by Stephen Conrad, Bobby Bear Jr., Jim Becker, Brad Jones. They go by the Jones sisters. Yeah. I love it. Do you want to hear that? Is that weird? Would that be super weird? I have Maybe, it here, you know, I think. Yeah, just play it for... Sure. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of visuals associated. The The opening of that show is an astronaut in space because that's a kind of a plot point in that show. Okay. So I, I, I think you might, you might kind of want to see the visual, but just imagine an astronaut in space as this song is playing. start talking because it's probably some kind of a like copyright violation if we play the whole song but i'll just tell you that in my opinion that song with it's basically filming a spacewalk Mm -hmm. like the combination of that song behind the images of someone doing a spacewalk it really works for me and i just also love i mean obviously season one of this show is the vashti bunyan song and then the second season i don't think i'm spoiling anything well and would i be spoiling if i mention it's Let's just say a totally different kind of song. Mm-hmm. And then you got this one that they wrote for Perpetual Grace Limited. I just like the range. Yes, and also, like, I don't know anything about Perpetual Grace, the show or the concept. But um, uh, if I were to hear that song, I wouldn't guess that that is accompanying or that's something that's essentially written for a spacewalk. You know what I mean? You would think yes. more, right. th- more theremin, more David Bowie yes. influence, <laughs> like something totally. spacey, not this, like, roots yeah. music. But he makes yeah, that nice. work. He just, he always, I mean, again, I haven't seen those credits, but like that is the type of thing that you see in Patriot. He just takes things that seem like they don't fit together and makes them work like a, some sort of weird spy show written like a poet. But I wonder about that a little bit. Like, is it, I, we should just try to get him on the show at some point because I have a lot of questions for him. I got a lot of questions for you, Conrad. Hey, Birdbath, will you get Conrad on the show for us, please? Yeah. Um, not enough Birdbath, by the way. I'm not just sucking up. No, we'll bird get bath. there. Yeah. We'll get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can never have too much Birdbath yeah. on the show as far as I'm concerned. But I wonder if if Stephen Conrad, I wonder, I mean, there's so much thought and care that has gone into this show. It's obvious. Nothing is haphazard. But I also wonder if sometimes he isn't just like, I love this song and I'm just going with my gut here. Or like, did they test five other Vashti Bunyan songs? Did they test five other songs? Did they even test them? Did they play them for people? You know, because sometimes when when there's a, a seemingly incongruous kind of thing of, of, of visual and, and audio, 
you could think, oh man, they just they they must have done five thousand versions of it and they found the right one, or it might have just been like they just made an executive decision, and then once you see it a few times, it just makes sense to your brain. Or you're driving into the studio one day and you pop that in, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. this could work like i love stories i mean i don't know i also love the fact that we keep on saying we should have uh stephen conrad on the show yet so far i'm pretty sure 100 percent of the questions we have for him are about the 45 second opening credits i I think which is actually (laughs) actually though i i say that somewhat seriously somewhat uh superficially but i again i think it speaks to the depth of this show like just those credits have so much going on without feeling overwhelming and, I mean, I don't know if this applies as much to shows on Amazon. Uh, I'm trying to th- think off the top of my head. I mean, broadcast TV, we've talked about this a lot on our other show on TBTL, but broadcast TV has really done away with credits because they just don't trust anyone's attention span. Um, now, the, what they do with Patriot that's kind of genius is they do, you know, I don't know what the technical term for it is. I would say cold open, but that's like an SNL term. But they basically start the show, and then at some point when you kind of least – you forget that there are credits – Mm-hmm. And you're just like you're in as the viewer, and then all of a sudden it's like then that music comes in, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, now we're gonna watch the credits. Um, but that's I don't know. I mean, are they? Is that? I wonder if that's unique. I'm trying to think of other shows that I watch on that are just on on demand platforms, and if they if those shows have more credits because they figure you picked, you know, you came there on purpose, and so they figure you can sit through the credits, like sitcoms and stuff. Nobody has like the Cheers theme anymore or something of that length it's got to be like five seconds because they're worried everyone's going to start looking at their phone or something yes but i mean i think there are some others i can't think of them off the top of my head but i know that i've had conversations with genevieve about how like i'll watch this a million times i'll never fast forward through the credits what i like about the patriot one is it just splits the different perf splits the difference perfectly because it's you know i'll bet you it's half the length of a cheer of a full cheers intro right but it has mm-hmm. so much more going on actually i even like the cheers intro i think that that always kind of mesmerized me as a kid like I, oh I my god i out. wanted to in the words of tina fey go to there yeah yeah and like the and weird parallels between, for many years. yeah but like the weird parallels we <laughs> like as a kid i was always looking for one-to-one like references between the photos they were showing and what's going on mm-hmm. in the actual show and i think i would still do that if i were to watch it today like i'm not because they show one person who looks very much like george went yes Look, by the guy's raising his yes. he's raising his drink right he's yes cheersing right exactly but they're not all one-to-one so right i um, had the exact same thought as a kid i was like is that george went I didn't right. know his name was George Went, but I was like, are these all people that are in the, where's the Rhea Perlman? Is there a tiny, tiny Rhea Perlman in there? <laughs> right, right. And anyway, I just want to welcome everybody to Malone Men, uh, the new <laughs> podcast where we break down the intro of Cheers. Love it. I, w- I would listen to that show. I would bank that show with you, my yes. friend. Uh, one last thing here that happens at the, towards the end of this episode is they, they, uh, uh, Timmons and Saperstein get uh, well they're allowed to basically go play this festival and you know because Afternoon Spray has gotten a little bit of moderate <laughs> have they gotten to that part yet Where's, I forget the exact terminology that he's using about the kind of radio play they're getting but I remember it cracking me up when I heard oh, it that's, I can't remember what the uh, I, think I, I think I have it here if we want to do it although this is this infuriated me a, a little bit because you don't you don't call and get yourself invited to a folk festival that you're supposed to play that evening without checking with the other 
person who's in your duo. Are you trying to let me know to not do that? Is that <laughs> just saying, the, the I, point would, of this? I would like to know before you book a Waffle House for a TV Well, then TL this event. makes me a Saperstein because <laughs> Saperstein is so geeked. That is true. He's just like, he's just like we got a chance. And then you're kind of over there timonsing going like – uh, although I don't think, well, I think the thing for Tim is it's really a scheduling issue. He's got to yeah, kill I mean. someone at two. I got to dispose of a body. My afternoon is just shot. I don't know if, no, I mean, literally I'm being shot at this yeah. afternoon. How long does I that I don't take? know if Four I minutes. can get out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Let's just listen to the scene where he tells him that, okay. uh, he's got to come to a folk festival that night. Yeah. Well, well, not really, but you know what is cool? We're getting medium play on three independent <laughs> radio stations in Central Europe. I'll stop it there. That's what you wanted to hear, right? That's a by, great needle drop. And by the way, that how that is not a TBTL drop. That's yet. a good I don't point. Know. We, we, did, we need to put that in the mix. I'd kill for medium play in several three, European, Central European uh, markets. <laughs> um, anyway, so they go out to the festival, and uh, you know. Saperstein is vamping in a very funny way, by the way. I love that scene, too. Before John gets there, when Saperstein is trying to explain what the music is supposed to sound like. Which, again, is silly because, like, it, yes, these are song. This is folk music. Like, you can, you can do these songs solo. You know that Rob has probably sat in his apartment and strummed these songs and sung them by himself, right? Like, you don't need the backup vocals on this song. But he's, like, stopping and saying, okay, imagine here a higher voice comes in. Uh, but I think he's just in his head too much about it. Or he's just kind of a dingus. Well, didn't he kind of, like, sort of hand the vocals of Afternoon Spray over to John a little bit? Because I felt like when he's te- trying to teach teach him the song John singing it and playing it this is back at the apartment years previous so I kind of feel like he wrote Afternoon Spray but then I think he kind of sees John as the person singing it but I'm talking about the song before Afternoon Spray the Supercell oh, oh. song he says oh, this song oh. is called Supercell and he starts singing oh. a song and then he okay. and then people are then he's like okay now here another voice comes in and be like no you would just do the voice yeah, I mean you would again I th- it's a joke I'm not trying to I'm right trying to shit on I it, love but- it no, no, but but um, uh, I was very. Ex- it's funny because like I keep wanting John again. I've seen this. I haven't seen all you know both seasons, but I've seen the first season and into the second season of the show. And I know that John does not become an international folk sensation, but I keep thinking maybe he can this time. I watch it <laughs> and I get excited for him when he shows up at this festival. And there's a bunch of people, and they kind of know Afternoon Spray because it's been getting medium play. Right. And like I was like all excited for him, and then of course he's. You know, you can't put that guy behind a mic without getting some, yeah, getting some real talk. And he, just as things are starting to, you think if it was a different kind of show, he plays Afternoon Spray and everyone's excited, but it's not. It's Patriot, and so he, of course, can't leave well enough alone, and then just shifts into singing about shit that he's been actually dealing with. Here we go. Laying in your clearing, Berlin. Built me in one morning with the leaves around your skin I hear rain fall on the palm Of the only hand that will hold mine And I listen, yeah I listen I just lay there with her and listen Drifting 
think anyone's Drop having this played as their first song at their wedding <laughs> or as their walk down? Yes. Somebody out there somewhere, please do that. Please, not the whole part that he's about to sing, but someone have afternoon spray performed. No, I want somebody to walk down the aisle to this, this part here. Okay. My boss, Leslie, is like your grandfather, but you like less than your other grandfather. Cause he's kind of a prick, and he says things like, keep your hair cut. But he just cares about things you should care about, like doing your work right and showing up on time, keeping your word and old world craftsmanship. But he's probably a better man. Your more casual grandpa Here's to Old school Keeping the OS I think your Grandpa number one And I Just wanted To tell you that And that I'll probably mess you up Somehow Anyway At this point Rob is just like Staring at him And then John just kind of breaks down and walks off the stage, which is a very upsetting scene. Somehow this is almost more upsetting than the than the murder scene earlier. Is it because in your mind he is having this great moment and it's just clear that he cannot stop himself? Yeah, I think maybe that is part of it. I hadn't really thought about it too much. Maybe part of it is just kind of like, to me, there's nothing worse than bombing on stage. Um, but no, I, I yeah, things are starting to go right. We see John smile a lot. Listen... I'm not trying to give anything away, but the 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 SPMs or smiles per minute mm-hmm. are going to go into the negatives, especially <laughs> in season two. It becomes I love the show, but it becomes emotionally draining as it goes on. And maybe I'm just maybe I'm misremembering it. Maybe there are there's more comedy nuggets in there that I'm remembering but it really the show d- takes on a feeling of wow how far are we going to keep digging into this morass and this episode seems like one that has a lot of h- happiness it happens at weird right. times and inconvenient times but there is some happiness in this episode and I'm wondering if this is the turning point like and the, one of the things he should be happy about is he's getting medium radio play in several uh, central European countries and somebody right. from the audience knows him well enough to yell we love you Rob so there's a certain amount of kind of acceptance and love there and then he can't even get through it. And I, I think this is, I think we've seen the peak happiness of John. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Um, so basically savor the flavor folks. Yeah. Enjoy them. Smoke them if you got them because it's, uh, it'll be, it'll be fascinating, but dark from here on out. Um, anything else that, uh, that you wanted to throw in about this show? Any, um, um, I guess just observations? for, just for the, um, for the point of, of, Wrapping things up, we should say then it ends. Uh, John leaves the folk concert. He's walking alone through the streets of Luxembourg, and then he sees the bag, the bag yes. that all the money is in, laying in the middle of the street, and nobody is around. And then that's the end of the episode. Yes, a good a cliffhanger. My interest was piqued, even though I know who had the bag. Like, mm-hmm. but I was like, oh my god, what's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. I was like, you remember, you watched this six months ago. 
Okay, fine. Time for bed. But I'm still. Um, oh, thanks for taking us all the way on that conversation. Um, yeah. I uh, I'm also brush still looking teeth. forward to it though. <laughs> brush your teeth. Oh man, you gotta get a new head for your Quip yeah. electric toothbrush. Um, That's right. I, hey, are we doing ads on this show? <laughs> Quip, get at us. Um, uh, I can't remember. Oh, I was gonna say I'm really looking forward to the next episode though because this episode was a good example of me kind of just for. for kind of plowing my way through it, even though I think I was lost on a lot of things the first time I watched this episode. This time, everything really clicked for me, and it made crystal sense to me. And Mm -hmm. so uh, I'm looking forward to next episode, because things do get complicated with the person who took the bag. Um, Not the bag man, but the bag man's bag man. Mm -hmm. Who bags the bag man's bag man? Can that be the show title? No one's ever asked. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, All right. I guess that's it then. Uh, Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll be here next week. Make sure until then you keep things double great. Living on the road, my friend, was going to keep you free and clean. Now you wear your skin like iron And your breath's as hard as kerosene You weren't your mama's only boy But her favorite one, it seems She began to cry when you said goodbye Sank into your dreams Poncho was a bandit boy's His horse was fast as polished steel Wore his gun outside his pants For all the honest world to feel Well, Pancho met his match, you know On the deserts down in Mexico And nobody heard his dying words But that's the way it goes And all the federales Could have had him any